following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. Due to an unfortunate technical difficulty on our end, the following recording is compromised and the sermon drops out at about the 15-minute mark, just as Dr. Master goes into the second point of his sermon. But we do believe that what we were able to capture is worth sharing with you. And so may the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Please turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. We'll be looking at one verse in this great chapter. The most familiar verse, surely, in this chapter, probably the most familiar verse in the whole Bible, the one I'm sure that may be familiar to most of you, but I'll read it nonetheless, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, let's pray once more. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, Father, would you please speak through your word this evening. May your spirit open our ears that we may respond to your word with both hearing and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this text, as I alluded to earlier, is a very familiar text, and it reminds me of a story that one of my former colleagues used to tell. I had an office right next to this man, and so I heard him tell the story to a number of people over the years, but it was a story that I think makes a point that's relevant to our text. So my friend used to tell of growing up in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, and as he was growing up, he was used to the scenery, he was used to the mountain passes and the great vistas that he would see, and he said one of the things that he found most frustrating was when he was about 16 or 17 years old and he began to drive, he would always get stuck behind tourists who were going slowly around these mountain passes. And he would just be eager to get to his destination. He wanted to move from point A to point B as quickly as possible. And yet he said these people were always in front of him and they were always slowing down as they went around the corners and as they got to these scenic overlooks, they would sometimes stop and, and, and look. And he said it was an immensely frustrating thing both to him and to all of his friends. He went away to college at about 18 or 19 years old and when he was away, his parents moved, and they moved across the country, and so he didn't have occasion really to go back there to his hometown. But about 10 or 15 years later, he did go back. I can't remember the occasion that brought him back to the area, but he went back and he said it was, it was almost shocking to him to go to this place where he had grown up. Because what he realized was every one of these scenic overlooks now was immense to his eyes. He said, I didn't, I didn't realize I grew up basically looking at a, at a postcard every day. And now he was the one who was slowing down around each corner and, and soaking in these great, tremendous views from the mountains. He said, I, I just didn't realize how, how vast it was, how, how beautiful it was, how magnificent it was. I didn't realize the depth of all that I was taking in because, because of its familiarity to me. And the same thing, of course, can be true of the Scriptures. We come to these familiar texts. John 3, 16. 
we can be in danger of passing over the glory of them, the grandeur of them, missing the beauty of sentences like this. Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he came to this verse, he said this verse, John 3.16, is the Bible in miniature. All that the scriptures teach are contained in this one verse. We are so familiar with, so in danger of passing over. Well, what's the context of John 3.16? What's the context in which this text appears? Well, the context, of course, in John chapter 3 is Jesus' conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He was a religious teacher of that time who came to Jesus by night and asked Jesus a number of questions about what it was that he was doing. And Jesus presents it with a very stark reality, which was, he says back in chapter, chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus is struck by this. He, in fact, doesn't know exactly what to make of it. This reality that Jesus confronts him with. And yet Jesus repeats himself in slightly different language. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus begins to explain what he means by this work of the Spirit. Nicodemus is confused. He's thinking in physical terms. And he's wondering how it is that someone could be born again, born a second time. But of course, what Jesus is pointing him to is this spiritual birth. And he ends by saying this in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, a great episode from the book of Numbers, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We don't know exactly what Nicodemus understood on that evening. There's some evidence at the end of John's Gospel that Nicodemus, in fact, did understand at one point. He was converted. He was born again. But nonetheless, the text leaves us hanging there with that summary statement about Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man needing to be lifted up, and, and all men needing to be born again. That's what leads us to these words. For God so loved the world. Now there are really two great themes in this verse. The first one's introduced right away at the outset. This great theme of the love of God. The love of God. Now in our culture today, to speak about the love of God really isn't anything novel or new. Most people, if they believe in God at all, will in some way think that He is a God of love. I think the way that we reason through it in our day and age is something like this. I love myself, and therefore God must love me. After all, that's God's job. He's supposed to love me. And so there's a sense in which this, this may not initially shock us, this phrase, for God so loved the world, but actually, it should be somewhat surprising to us. Certainly, it would have been surprising to someone like Nicodemus or the first readers of this text. John uses this terminology of love 
frequently in his gospel. If you read from the beginning of John to the end of John, you'll find this term love used quite a bit. Seven times John uses it to describe the father's attitude, the father's affection for the son, that the father loves the son. Uh, Twelve times John speaks of love that the triune God has for the disciples of Jesus Christ. Five times John speaks of the love that the disciples must have for Christ. And then four times he speaks of the disciples' love for one another. But on this occasion, on this occasion, John takes this theme of love. He says, God loves the world. That's the shocking thing about this first phrase. Not that John speaks of love. Even that John speaks of God being a God of love. You read that elsewhere. What he says is God so loved the world. And why is that shocking? Well, first of all, it's shocking because to many people in Jesus' day, certainly to Nicodemus and others like him, it would have been a shock to think of God's love extending beyond the Jewish people. It wasn't uncommon at all for someone like Nicodemus to assume that perhaps God had, had set his love on him and had set his love on his countrymen. Uh, after all, the Old Testament speaks of God's love for his people. This text speaks of God loving the world. One Jewish writer in the same circles as Nicodemus wrote this about Gentiles, about non-Jews. He wrote in AD 66, the best of Gentiles should be killed. But even if we look inside the Bible, we see this, this uh, disparity, this enmity between Jew and Gentile. We see, for instance, Paul in Acts 21. He's arrested by the Jewish officials. And he's arrested for one specific reason. He's arrested because it was reputed, it had been reported by others, although it turned out to be a false report, that Paul had the audacity to bring a Gentile into the Jewish temple. And for that he was arrested and ultimately put on trial. Gentiles were often known as unclean and as dogs. That was not an infrequent way you'll see Gentiles referred to in these circles. And yet... This says, God so loved the world, Jew and Gentile alike. You see, there's more than that going on. Because if you read John's Gospel from the very beginning, you read this prologue of John where he speaks about Jesus Christ. What he says about Jesus Christ is that he came into the world, and the world did not know him. Here, these unbelieving members of the world, Jew and Gentile alike, we read, God so loved the world. The world was made through him, John says, and the world did not know him. For God so loved the world. You know, when the Bible wants to speak of God's love for his people, there are all kinds of ways the scriptures do this. 
But one of the ways that it's going to be addressed in this verse is by describing the Father's gift of the Son to the world. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, when the Apostle Paul is trying to show the preeminent example, the preeminent proof of God's love for his people, what he says is, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That language of his only son, perhaps in your translation, it will say something like only begotten son, which is correct. And it points us to something very true about the relation between the father and the son. But there's something else that this text points us to, which is in the Old Testament. It says he gave his only son. It's actually language from the book of Genesis. It's in the book of Genesis, you might remember this story. Abraham who's given a son, a child of promise, is commanded by God to take that son and to sacrifice him. And you might remember the poignant moments of that account where Abraham and his son Isaac are about to send him out and they leave the servants behind and Isaac says, Father, I see the, I see the implements, and I see the wood, but where's the, where's the sacrifice? Where's the Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. And then as they ascend the mountain, you remember Abraham takes the knife and he's poised to kill his son. The book of Hebrews tells us he believed that God could raise him from the dead. And as he's about to sacrifice his son, God says, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son. That language, that evocative language of the only son, the only son, that's what's used here to describe God's love for the world. You doubt that this is true? That God so loved the world? The Bible would say he gave his only son. Now you, now you know. And if this were all we learned from this text, if the only thing we learned was that the incar in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, God was displaying his love for the world, this, this world that has rejected him, Jew and Gentile. If that's all we learned from this text, it would be a glorious text. You see the second major point in the text, that not only did God so love the world that he gave his only son, but in fact, this gift of his son, this display of his love, has immense consequences for those who are his. Look at what it says in the second part of the verse. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The second great truth in this text is the saving benefit given in this gift of love. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. 
For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.